Let's turn in our Bibles tonight to Matthew chapter 22. I want to read together just the first 10 verses. Matthew chapter 22. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Matthew 22, we'll read from verse 1. Reading, of course, as we've announced often from the authorized version. And for those online, the words will come up on the screen. But we would encourage you to get a copy of the Bible and read them for yourself as well as see and hear them. Matthew 22, verse 1. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, the kingdom of heaven like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Again he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burnt up their city. Then saith he to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways, and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own precious and infallible word. Now my text tonight is taken from Matthew chapter 22 and the verse 2. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. And I've simply entitled the message the marriage of the king's son. So now you know the text, and now you know the theme. And here in the immediate context, the Lord Jesus is once more in the temple at Jerusalem. Once again, in parabolic language, he's addressing the religious leaders of his day. You've got to think of the strength of the word and. In verse 22, verse 1, And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, In the context, he's addressing the religious leaders of the day and those who were listening to him in the temple and its precincts. And on this occasion, and this is really his third parable, and I not go into the first parable or the second parable for the sake of time, but this is really the third parable that he spoke to them. And these are some of the final days of Christ's life. And he's teaching them 
what the kingdom of heaven is like. And remember the words, the kingdom of heaven refers to the reign and the rule of God in one's life. And he's telling us that the reign and rule of God in one's life is like the marriage of a king's son. Now, the majority of us, if not all, are very familiar with the concept of a wedding and the preparation for a marriage or a wedding ceremony. Most of the adults here and perhaps some of the young people have some experience of weddings and understanding of the preparation that's involved for a wedding. Now, the marriage of a king's son was more than just the wedding ceremony. It included the wedding ceremony, but it also included the wedding invitations, the preparation for the food, the various feasts. You see, this wedding feast was especially important because it was the marriage of a king's son. So it wasn't just an ordinary wedding. And it would have included more than just one meal in one day. It's more than likely it would have been stretched into two or three days. It could even have been a seven-day event. And you would have had a wedding breakfast and a, a wedding lunch. And you had a wedding evening preparation dinner and so on and so forth. And the Lord Jesus told his listeners that the kingdom of heaven is like the marriage of a king's son. You've got to think here of the son of the king. He's the one who's getting married. And of course it serves as a reminder of his exalted character. And isn't the king's son at the very center of the gospel message? The king here himself is the one who is sovereign. And he's representative of God as father. Uh, the absolute chief ruler and planner. Uh, the, the king here, as I've said, is a portrayal of God as father. And he's the one who sends forth his servants to bring the news of the invitations. He tells his servants, go and tell. This is the invited guests. Come for all things are now ready. And the king's servants uh, who live to do his bidding, they do that. And the king's guests, of course, represent the many who are called to come to the wedding. If the son in the wedding represents Jesus Christ, and the king represents God as father, and the king's servants represent his holy prophets and holy preachers, then also we are legitimate in saying that the rejection of the invitation to the wedding in itself portrays our rejection of Christ. Now, let's think about this. This is the marriage of the king's son. So you've got to think of a king. And he is the chief architect and planner of the wedding, the ceremony, the reception. You think of the location being chosen. Some great hall, the cake, the decor, the guest list, who's coming, who's sitting where, the initial invite that's given out, the day of the wedding, 
The carriage has been sent out all over Jerusalem and even further afield. Gowns and outfits sitting prepared so that people when they arrive can put on the purchased prepared gown or outfit. The carriages go out around Jerusalem. They return. But could you imagine the scene? That here's the marriage of the king's son. Here's all this preparation in the great hall. The cake is baked. The day of the wedding has come. The food has been prepared. The initial invitation is being renewed. Come now for all things are ready. The carriages are here to pick up people. And then they begin to return one to one to the king's palace. And as the courtier opens the door of the carriage to bring out Mr. and Mrs. and announce them, there's no one in the carriage. The carriage is empty. Nobody has shown up. You've got to think of the rage of the king. They have made light of his invitation. They have made illegitimate excuses. They've talked about their farm. They've talked about their merchandise. And then, of course, the king hears reports that this is what they have done to his servants. They have seized them. They have beaten them up. They've even killed some of them. And the king's wrath is aroused. And then, of course, we read in the scriptures here, then when the king heard, for off he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. And then, of course, we read the king's servants were sent out the second time. And they were to go into the highways and invite the common people, the people who were unworthy to come. And they came. And it says in verse 10, and those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good. And the wedding was furnished with guests. Now remember, this is a parable. It's an earthly story. We, we can understand at least part of the concept here. But it's got a heavenly meaning. Now, now, what is that heavenly meaning? That's what I want us to think about tonight. I want us to focus on the spiritual application of this all. I want you to think, first of all, of the particular invitation of the king. The particular invitation of the king was threefold. First of all, it was privileged. Many of us, of course, love an invite to a wedding. But imagine getting an invite from a king. You would think out of all the citizens of the country, you were especially privileged. You have been specially chosen for some reason. If I refer back to 1981, I think it was, and I hope my memory's right, at the wedding of Prince Charles and Lady Diana Spencer. And of course, it was portrayed to the world as a fairy tale wedding, and so it was. It had a global audience, I'm told, of 750 million. I can't remember exactly the date, but it was 1981. And it was an honor to, to have been invited. This was not just a wedding. This was a, a royal wedding. But this wedding that the Lord Jesus spoke about was also a royal wedding. But more than that, the king himself was the king of heaven. I want you to look at verse 3. Notice what he says. And sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. Think of those words, call them that were bidden. What does that mean? It means a repetition. Literally call those who were called. You see, this invitation went out. 
initially. And then there was a second part to that invitation where, where that initial invitation became more specific. And it was customary in those days to give a preliminary notice, especially uh, from a king, and especially the marriage of a king's son, uh, to signify to certain individuals that they are going to be invited to the marriage of the king's son. Uh, and this preliminary notice, they're, they're telling them, get ready, for it'll come in a day and an hour. The place will be appointed. And then you'll be informed all things are now ready. And when all the necessary planning is in place and that feast is ready, then there'll be a definite follow-up. And those invited will be expected to give up what they're doing and come immediately. The invited, of course, would have plenty of time to ponder the privilege of such an invitation. You and I are sinners. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're born outside of Christ. And yet, individually, we are greatly privileged to be invited together to celebrate in the union of the King's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his lovely bride, the elect of God chosen from before the foundation of the world. If I ask tonight, why did the Lord Jesus come into the world? Here's the answer. Luke 19 and 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Here's the true and ultimate purpose of God among men. Sinners who come in repentance and faith to Christ and receive him as Lord and Savior and, and, and are found in Christ, are, are found in a saving union and a saving relationship to him. There is a relationship, a saving union between Christ and his people. And you know what it's like unto a marriage union? I made reference of this at a wedding that I was at in July. And this is what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might redeem it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. See, here's the ultimate purpose and intention of God in the gospel. Purchasing a bride for Christ that, that, that will be like a marriage union between Christ and his people. You see, as a gospel preacher tonight, we go forth in the Lord's name. We seek out a people to be married or, or joined in a saving union with Christ. Think of Rebecca. Remember her? She agreed to marry a man that she had only heard of, but not seen. She heard the faithful report of Abraham's servant. That persuaded her she was going to accept the invitation. She, she counted it a privilege. And you see, tonight, as has been happening for two millennia and more, God in Christ is gathering a people out of the earth, a people out of every tribe and tongue and nation. The Great Commission is going into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And in the book of Romans, Paul said this in Romans 1 and verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, that is as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And from this union, being in a spiritual married union to Christ comes a change. There's a change of status. 
single and then married to Christ. Without Christ and then a married union to Christ. The Bible says if any man be in Christ is a new creature. All things have passed away and all things have become new and all things are of God. And of course there's a change of name. We're no longer in God's sight designated sinners. We're now designated saints and sons and servants and soldiers and stewards. And of course, there's this change of an address when somebody gets married and, and the, the, the bride not only takes the husband's name, but, but the bride goes to live by and large with her husband. At least that's what happened in early days for this cause. Shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife? And of course, we're no longer, our home's no longer here on earth. Or we have a home now in heaven. And there's a change of lifestyle when you get married. And it's all applicable to Christ. Once we're brought into a saving union with Christ, we're brought into a new life. And all these changes take place. And we're brought into a life of fruitful and faithful service. So this is a privileged invitation if we think of the particular invitation. But it's also a provided invitation. If we look at verse 4 in Matthew 22, it says, And all things are ready. Behold, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. What a bounty. People were invited to take off. It's the king's provision. A feast of good things set before every privileged guest. And of course, you think of a wedding feast. You've got the appetizer, whatever that is. And then you've got the starter. I like salmon and prawns for starters, if you're thinking of a wedding. And then, of course, you have soup. And then you have the main course. You can have chicken, you can have steak, or you can have whatever you desire. And then you have dessert and tea and coffee. And all that's part of the wedding feast. But what do you think of that spiritually? The new life in Christ. Ephesians 2 and 1, and you... Uh, hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins? 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And to those tonight who sit in death and are held fast in the bondage of death and held in the chains of darkness and death, there's a glorious message. You can be set free to whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And you can have new life in Christ. You can have a full and free and forever pardon. I um, meditate often in the Psalms, as you well know. And over there in Psalm 32, we read those glorious words. It speaks of a full and free and forever pardon. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, carried away, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, cancelled out. Sin carried away, sin covered over by the precious blood, sin uh, cancelled out. Thy sins and iniquities I will remember no more. And of course Isaiah the prophet proclaimed that uh, powerful message to all who would listen in his day. And whenever he said in Isaiah uh, 1 and verse 18, uh, Come now and let us reason together, uh, thus saith the Lord, uh, though thy sins be as scarlet. They shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as well. Think of 1 John 1 and 7. 
The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. In whom we have redemption through his blood. Even the forgiveness of sins, Paul says, according to the riches of his grace. And you can enjoy in Christ a full and free and forever pardon. You can lay your head on the pillow and say, my sin is gone. It's under the blood. What about a life of joy and peace? Doesn't the Bible say in Romans 5 and verse 1, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You think in Acts 8 of the day that the Ethiopian eunuch got saved. The Bible not only tells us that he believed the gospel, but he went on his way rejoicing. You see, he was born of the Spirit. He had peace with God. He had the peace of God. He had the joy of the Holy Ghost in his heart. The Bible encourages us rejoice in the Lord always. Maybe you're going through a hard time at this minute. Maybe you're going through a trial. And your circumstances are bleak and difficult. But even in those days of trial and difficulty, you can still rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because you've got the peace of God. You've got the joy of the Lord, which is your strength. What about a life of power and victory? What about a life of freedom in Christ? Can anything ever separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus the Lord? Have we not got his promise? I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Didn't the psalmist say, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. Thy rod, thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, it's a provided invitation. Not only privileged, but it's provided. I want to tell you something else that's personal. It came to each guest individually. And of course, they had an obligation to respond. So there's the particulars of the king's invitation. Notice, secondly and quickly, the perversion of the king's invitation. Look at verse 3, Matthew 22. It says, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Think of that. They would not come. Let me just point out, this was a willful refusal. It was without excuse. The invitation was clear and plain. They understood the invitation. They knew that it was a privileged invitation to them. They knew that the provision was already made and that it was personal. They simply didn't want to come. They deliberately chose not to. And of course, that's why many people refuse God's invitation to salvation and new life in Christ. It's a matter of their will. They, they choose not. It's a choice of their will not to uh, embrace this invitation. As I've said, it's a willful refusal. It's also a, a wicked refusal. If you think of the words here, and we don't really grasp it in the English, but in the Greek sense, and they would not come, it means a continual rejection. And if you think of the context here, a certain king made a marriage for his son, sent forth his servants to come them that were bidden to the wedding, and they would not come. Notice verse 4. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden. Explain to them in detail. All the preparations are made. Come to the marriage. And yet, not only did they reject initially, but they reject specifically that detailed invitation. 
It's the characteristic of a stubborn refusal. If you think of the context here, it says in verse 5, but they made light of it. Do you see that? In other words, they counted it as not important. You think of these guests making light of God and his great salvation. And isn't that attitude so prevalent? How many are careless of and neglect and show contempt and gross discourtesy towards God and his great salvation? The gospel tract given to them, say the 12th of July, the 13th of July, and it's thrown down. You think of an invite to a gospel meeting, drive-in service or whatever, and it's sneered at. You think of a gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ, and how it's disregarded. You, you, you think of the contempt for trying to share a word in the gospel with them, family members and friends and strangers. You see, there's a wickedness about it. It's not only um, done uh, lightly, it's done with that continual mindset. Of course, it's also a wanton refusal. Look, look at the excuses that they made and went their ways, one to his farm and another to his merchandise. What could we say about that? Elevating cows above Christ. Elevating merchandise above the master. Elevating silver above salvation. Elevating gold above God's grace. You see, they made so much light of it that they preferred other things. They preferred the cow, the merchandise, the silver, the gold. And aren't we living in days when the merchant and trader is elevated highly? He's thought of greatly by way of importance. But here in our day, there's nothing more important in Northern Ireland than the economy. And the economy is important. And we should take note of that and have encouraged to support the local uh, businesses, the local shops. But I want to tell you there is something more important than the economy. And that's eternity. And people are more concerned about the economy than eternity. And yet we read in the scriptures, if you look at Mark chapter 8, look with me there at verse 35 and verse 36. Let me read them to you. The words will come up on the screen. It says here, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. Or what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Verse 37. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? I want you to notice something else, that this is a wayward refusal. This refusal is linked to persecution. Look, look at verse 7, or verse 6. And the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. Do you see that? Think of the steps. Now, with this willful refusal, with an element of wickedness attached to it, that, that's full of wantonness because there's other things more important than the marriage of the king's son, it becomes wayward. It's linked to cruel persecution. You, you think of the uh, words here, in verse 7, took his servants, it means to lay hold of them, to lay their hands upon them, to, to seize them, to, to arrest them. 
You, you think of the, the shaming of them, it says, and treated them spitefully. That means they behaved um, insolently towards them. They don't treat them with respect and honor. It is not true of God's servants in every age. Looked upon as the filth of the earth, the off-scarring of all things, not fit to live. Christ rejectors, and they're inflamed, and they're enraged, and they're impassioned. We only have to think recently of the arrest and imprisonment uh, of um, certain open-air preachers. It's becoming common again in England. The words of the Bible have become an offense. Think of Mr. John Sherwood and others. On a frivolous, groundless complaint, the man was manhandled by the police and arrested for hours and taken to the police station. See, that's what he's talking about here. And then, of course, he adds this. Here's the climax of their hostility. And slew them. The treatment of God's servants, even to the point of death. And isn't this true scripturally? Isn't it true historically? The Old Testament. How the history of God's province. Think of the days of Jezebel. The days of Ahab. How they were treated. Think of instances where there have been the murder of God's servants down through the ages from the killing times of the Covenanters right up to our day where people are still being murdered and martyred for their faith in Christ. Muslim-dominated countries, communist countries. See, times haven't changed. There's the perversion of the invocation of the king. Let, let me say also, thirdly, there's the provocation of the king's invitation. You see... How did the king in the story view this rejection? The Bible says here in verse 7, but when the king heard of thereof, he was wroth. He thought of this snub to himself, snub to his son, snub to the royal throne. And of course, what he did was he sent forth his army and destroyed those murderers and burned up their cities. And that's a reference to the Jewish leaders, how they murdered the Prince of Life and put him to death on the cross. And of course, the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in AD 70. It's all being prophetic here. That this is directed primarily to the Jewish people and their leaders in their day. But we can lift it up to the gospel invitation. To those that treat the gospel lightly. To those that reject it outright. What's the net result? Well the net result is this. There's an outpouring of the wrath of God. Isn't there a false Christianity abroad today where it tells us God is love? And I believe that the scripture teaches that. God is love. But he's not a God of love who loves sin. You see, God tonight is not smiling on the fornicator or the adulterer, the drunkard, the wife beater, the drug addict, the thief, the murderer, or even the sodomite. This book tells us, Psalm 7, verse 11, God is angry with the wicked every day. And you see, we need to remember that God hates sin. And God is a burning, holy hatred towards sin. Think of our Lord Jesus Christ. Two characteristics. He loved righteousness and he hated iniquity. And he still hates iniquity. And we need to remember that. Remember what he says there in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 23. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And of course, in Matthew 25 and verse 41, we read these words from the mouth of the Savior. Then shall he say also unto them in the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
And the wrath of God is reserved for Christ's rejectors. And the refusal of the gospel has terrible consequences. Remember what we read there in the book of Thessalonians, in Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, and we read there in verse 7 and 8, uh, very strong words, and this is what we read. We read this, And do you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? You shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And if we add into that this exhortation in the scriptures that says, flee from the wrath to come. For we read this in Revelation 14 and 9, and the third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Remember the Bible talks about the wrath of the Lamb. And over in Revelation 21 and verse 8 we read, But the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Gospel preacher urges men and women to consider the provocation in relation to the rejection of the king's invitation. Flee from the wrath to come. And remember, yes, there's a heaven above, but there's a hell beneath. And let me finish tonight with the pleasure of the king's invitation. See, this king's a good king. He's a merciful ruler. And in wrath, he remembers mercy. The wedding is ready. Those that are bidden are not worthy. So he tells his servants, go into the highways and the byways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. That's what he says in verse 10. So the servants go out into the highways and the byways. They make an intense, diligent search for individuals. They do it persistently. They do it with patience. They, 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 they bring the unworthy uh, and gather them in. They think themselves worthy to be gathered into the marriage supper of the Lamb, the religious, the respectable, the righteous. Many think that their works will get them into heaven. But who hasn't lied? Who hasn't lusted? Who hasn't been lewd with their words and their thoughts? Many are respectable and righteous in their own eyes. But Titus says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he hath saved us by the washing of regeneration through the word. And what's his purpose? The word furnished here means filled. So there's no empty seats. It speaks of great happiness. It speaks of a great honor at the marriage of the king's son, participating in the wedding feast. And of course, the Jews who rejected the gospel. Now for two millennia that gospel message has gone out throughout the Gentile world. And you and I are part of that Gentile world. And we, because of their willful rejection, we have been very mercifully and graciously gathered in. Because the good news of the gospel has come to us. It comes to all who are good and bad. You see, no one merits heaven. 
No one merits salvation. The bad could refer to those who are reckless sinners down and out. The good can refer to those who are religious and respectable and righteous in their own eyes. And maybe feel they're a bit better. But in the eyes of God they're not because there's none worthy to enter into heaven. We all must come the same way. We're at the mercy of the king's invitation. And I ask tonight as we finish... You recognizing that you're not from the Jewish community, that you're a Gentile, born and reared. But let me ask you this. If you got an invite from the king to come to the marriage of the king's son, what would you do with that invitation? You would count yourself privileged. You would say this invitation's personally mine. And all that it stands for, everything is provided. You see, in those days, you didn't even have to buy a garment, ladies. You didn't have to buy shoes, a handbag, a hat, or nothing. It was all provided. Man, a, a suit of clothes was provided. And, 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 and you were brought in at no expense. All expense was the king. We lifted up into the spiritual realm. The king of heaven is inviting you to the marriage of his son. To join in saving union with him. And he does it mercifully. He does it in love. On the basis of grace. And that invitation's given to you. Even though you're unworthy and undeserving. Me come to the king's palace. Me sit in one of those chairs. At that table. Couldn't do it. But you can. Because it's the merciful invitation of the king. It's his good pleasure to summon you to come. How will you come? Will you respond tonight? Will you receive him? Will you trust Christ as Lord and Savior? And be a participant in this marriage of the King's Son. May the Lord take these few words and bless them to your heart.